All right. I can't move around because the microphone is like tacked down to the thing, and there's people all around me, so that's good. It'll keep me constrained here. Um, how you guys doing? There's a lot of you guys. <laughs> um, well, today I'm going to be talking about cultivating a fiery spirit. And there's there's um, a couple things that I really like have really been on my heart since I was asked to speak, and I'm I really want to talk about just common misconceptions that we have about what it looks like to be on fire. Um, and I the reason I know that is because I have had so many of those, and I still have so many, and I'm constantly being washed of them daily as I you know as I encounter the Lord and and um, as He touches my heart, I'm realizing. Um, what it means to be on fire has been so different than even what I was taught um, by whoever and even the things that I invented in my own mind of what I thought it meant to be, you know, a fiery lover of God. And so I want to talk about that. And then I just want to talk a little bit about what it what it looks like um, to be on fire. That's our like our famous charismatic young adult in America. That's our, our favorite term is like, we want to be on fire for God. And um, I really want, like I want, myself and every one of you guys to walk out of this room with a real understanding of what the word says about what God esteems in a human heart and what it looks like to be fully given to his will. Um, it's not about an external, you know, an external, you know, expression primarily. Um, and then I just want to talk about a little bit how, how to cultivate that and how to keep it sustained for years. Um, because, like I love the one thing conferences and I love to stand in the auditorium and look at 10,000, you know, 20 year olds and 18 year olds with their hands raised and weeping and knowing that God is speaking to them. Um, but I, last night I was standing in the auditorium during the evening session. I was looking at everyone and I was thinking, I was like, Lord, how many of these young people are going to be in love with you in 10 years? And how many of them are going to be still weeping, you know, when they read your word in 20 years, how many of their children are going to grow up and, and, and walk a path of righteousness and love you the days of their youth and as they grow up. And so my heart for you guys is to walk out and with, with an understanding of what it means to be on fire and with practical ways of how to sustain that, a heart of, a true heart of passion for the rest of your lives. Um, because apostasy is real. Um, and that's one thing that's been on my heart lately is that my own proneness to, to just get so easily distracted, even in a matter of a few days. Like, I'll go home. Like, I live, I'm in a community right now where I pray, you know, you know, 24 to 30 hours a week, and I'm, like, doing fasting in the Word, and all my friends are doing the same thing with me. So I'm in this microwave, you know, a growth microwave. But when I go back home to my family in California, and they have, you know, they have a big screen TV and lots of food, and, and like that, I mean, I've been here for four years, and like that, it's so easy for me to just want to watch a television and get swept up in a plot and how much reality pains me. Reality is, is painful and it's ugly and it's hard and Jesus is not back yet <laughs> and I'm still in this body of death and, you know, my old man is growing corrupt with this lust and I just want to get out of this thing and movies, like, feel better. <laughs> and so it's so easy for me. I'll be home for a few days and I'm like, three days after going home to visit, I'm like, I'll be laying in bed and I'm going, all my friends are praying right now because I'm on the night watch. So, you know, it's 2 a.m. I'm laying in bed at 2 a.m. in California. It's 4 a.m. and they're like doing intercession and I'm thinking about them and I'm going, I don't even want to pray. Like, I mean, I just kind of want to watch CSI again. (laughs) After like my (laughs) third DVD of the night, I stay up watching CSI. And it's just that easy for me. And we're, that is a human condition. We're all prone to that. And so waking up every day and saying yes 
and we have to give ourselves daily or else we'll fall away. I mean, it, it won't happen in a week, but after a year, you'll start to feel dull and you'll be like, oh, I'm just in a season of barrenness. You know, you, maybe you're in a season of barrenness, but maybe you just haven't prayed and read the Bible in a year, you know, um, which I am. It's so easy to just do that. It's so easy. Even in IHOP, it's easy. I mean, it's not, it's not a glory, it's not super glorious. Like, it's hard to read the Bible when I just want to, like, escape the truth sometimes because it's so painful. Um, and so I really want to help a little bit just to equip you guys so that in, you know, when I see you on the other side, your heart will be burning and flaming and I'll be like, oh, you know, you know, the Lord will say, they were in that seminar that you taught that one time, remember, when you didn't want to do it and you did it anyway? <laughs> and here they are burning before me because you had you had a little bit to sow. And, w- you know, we all have our spheres of influence. And so my prayer today for you guys is that whatever is sown today would remain, that there would be some fruit from this conference and from the seminar that would remain in your heart. So I'm going to just pray real quick um, for you guys. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just ask you to come and, and visit our hearts in this room tonight. Lord, we ask you to come and, and, and touch us and breathe upon our hearts. Lord, we ask you to take our cold, hard hearts and our, our natural resistance to your word and your, your ways and that you would, you would, you would release fire upon us. That you would, you would burn within us today. Lord, I ask you for every single heart in this room, every single one, that, that everyone would leave this conference changed not just changed from for a month, but Lord, they would be changed for the rest of their lives. Father, I'm asking you for a fruit that remains. Lord, that we would see each other's faces in the age to come, that we would be filled with joy and filled with love for your son. God, that you would keep us to the end. When you return to the earth, that you would find a fire of faith in every heart in this room. Don't let us be lost, Lord. Don't let us be swept away with the spirit of the age. Don't let us be swept away with winds of doctrine and and the ways of man. God, keep us in your love. In Jesus' name. So so I got an email, and it said I was invited to speak at the One Thing Conference, and my topic was cultivating a fiery spirit. So I was reading the email, and I'm going, what in the world am I going to talk about? And, you know, can you please give us a few sentences so we can put it in the brochure? What are you going to be talking about? I'm like, we need it by, you know, two days from now. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to be talking about. Um, And so I just sat and I thought, I was like, Lord, what what is in my heart? What What is a fiery spirit? And I thought of something that happened to me when I was in the internship four years ago. I did Fire in the Night. And um, uh, my internship leader, Stuart Greaves, had us in a room one night and he said he's like okay and we were just having like an open dialogue or whatever and he said okay um what do you guys think radical christianity is and we're like oh you know we know because we we all came to pray for three months all night long and that's like you know when you if you decide to do that there's something in your heart that's been stirred and you, you know most of us who came to the internship were like you know a lot of us were like the on fire ones or whatever and so we're like we're gonna like go and pray all night and I thought I was gonna pray in a room with no music with a bunch of middle aged women I had no idea what I was in for um, so I came and he's like what's your definite you know define radical Christianity and so we're all pop- hands are popping up and we're like you know selling everything you have and moving to Africa you know radical Christianity is preaching with fire and signs and wonders and and I, I was, and I could tell he was looking for an answer that people weren't giving. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, I'm going to get that answer. And I'm going to like pop my hand up and I'm going to like, wow, everybody. Cause I'm like looking at him going, yeah, you know, I want to be the favorite or whatever. 
And I'm like, I'm like, ooh, I know. And I go, and I'm like, praying in a praying in a room for six hours all night long while you know horrible things are happening. And he's like, yeah, okay, you know, and he, you know, and I'm like, that wasn't the answer. I thought for sure it was going to be about you know praying for six hours a night. And um, he 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 heard all of our answers and he said, I want you to turn with me to Matthew five. And he proceeded to teach on the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm going to hit a little bit later. But what 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 struck me is that my, myself four years ago, I had so many ideas of what I wanted to be as as a passionate lover and as a radical Christian and and as a I wanted to be on fire for God. And my idea of what that looked like um, was good. I mean, there was there was a truth in that. But what I lacked was the understanding that God is looking through the earth and he's not looking for an external for an external expression unless it's unless it's the um, fruit of an internal reality, um, which an external expression is good, but by themselves it means nothing. And um, I want us to, if you want to, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. So I want to just talk about this for a second. This is the famous love chapter. Uh, most of you probably are familiar with it. Paul is talking... Um, I mean, they're in the midst of a revival, um, the early church, and there's gifts that are coming out. There's tongues, there's prophecy, there's healings and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And he's addressing um, a church where there's manifestations of Holy Spirit activity. And so it's not like these it's not like these people are like, you know, lackadaisical and don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit and, you know, cessationalist and sort of, you know, whatever. They're actually operating in you know, in the gifts, which is, like, really exciting, and I want that for me and my community. Um, but he, so he's talking about the diversity of the gifts, and he, and then he kind of throws in this random chapter, 13, and we quote it at our weddings, and our, you know, we put it on our cards to our best friends and our boyfriends, and it's really cool, but it's mostly about the context of a community where the gifts are operating. So these people are on fire, you know, they're prophesying and they're speaking in tongues and they're interpreting and all this kind of stuff, but there was a lack. And I really want to talk about, I want to talk about that lack, but I want to talk about what he addresses as being worthless without love. He says, if I, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clinging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, Though I can preach and wow an audience of 10,000, though I'm, you know, loud and, and have a charismatic personality, and though I'm a prophet even, if I can lay hands on you and read your mail and you break down weeping, but if I have not love for me, I mean, bless you, you got touched by the Lord, but for me, that means nothing. God is not looking down and going, wow, she's so prophetic, I'm so impressed. <laughs> honestly, honestly, even in our best hour, in light of who he is, we are unimpressive. And he's so kind and humble that he enjoys us. And it's, you know, a crazy and doesn't make any sense to me, but it's true. But really, we're unimpressive. Um, if I'm talented, I mean, you can throw in talent. If I, I like, I'm a, I'm a singer, and I've been singing since I can remember. Like, I've just been singing. And I'm, I'm pretty, like, I'm talented. I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not trying to be humble. Like, I'm, I'm a good singer. And so where I've gone... When I when I sang, I've had people tell me, "You're so passionate," and I'm like, and it's so uh, for me, it, it's been 
terrifying to, to, to realize how easy I can fool myself because I'm talented or I have a bubbly personality or I'm extroverted or I can make people laugh. You know, a lot, some of you in this room are like that and it can be mistaken for passion and for zeal for God and for fire. And that's, that's like scary because we can seriously fake ourselves out <laughs> in a scary way. So I can think I'm real passionate because I'm singing well and people, just because people's lives are getting touched by my talent doesn't mean that when the Lord looks at my heart, he's pleased with what he sees. Scary, scary. So though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, I mean, if I'm operating in power even, I mean, I can't even imagine a more, a more a better picture of an on-fire person than somebody who is like speaking the word, raising the dead, healing the sick, prophesying, causing people to break down under the conviction of God, you know, preaching with fire. I mean, I would look at that person and go, surely, surely they, you know, the Lord esteems them very, very highly. That may, that may be true, but it may not be true. And so we have to get away from that idea because not all of us are going to be fiery preachers. That's just the way it is. But when the Lord looks down from heaven, he's looking for something that each one of us is able to possess, which is freeing for everybody to be who we are and to really love God and, and to understand that he is, what he esteems is, is, is something that is available to all. Um, so if I'm raising the dead, healing the sick, it doesn't mean anything by itself. I mean, the word says that many, Jesus said, um, Jesus said, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And he'll look at them and go, I never knew who you, I never knew you. I never knew you. I'm not, God is not looking for, you know, somebody who can prophesy. He's not looking for somebody who can cast out demons. He's not even looking for, you know, somebody who's a great messenger. God can raise up a messenger out of this sweater. <laughs> he can raise up worshipers out of stones. He can raise up sons out of, you know, out of rocks. He is God. And if he wants something done, he can get it done. What he's looking for is a heart fully yielded. And without that, we stand before him at the end of our life. And no matter how many dead people we raised or how many, you know, whatever, whatever's happened, if he didn't know us, it's going to be, it's going to be a terrifying day. Um, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. One of my, um, one of my biggest, uh, you know, ideas that I had when I was in high school was I want to move to Africa and work with the poor and work with AIDS victims. And I want my hands all over the dust of the earth. Like I want to be with the most undesired, you know, because I had been touched by the Lord in a way where I realized how undesirable I was. And I was like, I'm going to turn and I'm going to go and touch the undesired, which is awesome. Like that was a real fruit of what the Lord did in my heart. And here I am four years later, and maybe I'm a total complete failure because I've never held, you know, an African orphan. And I've never, you know, touched an AIDS victim. And I've never, you know, wept over people who are dying of leprosy. And I've never got my hands on that. And you know, I, I wear nice clothes and I get to shower every day and I have benefits and, and blessings and I'm, I'm thankful for those. But I had serious issues with the idea of moving out here and living in, in the suburbs. Like that what, to me was like the worst nightmare of my life is to be like an, an American, you know, you know, middle class suburbanite. 
<laughs> like I hated that idea. I thought that is the most backslidden state I could possibly ever end up in. Um, I thought for sure, like, because I love him so much, I have to go to the poorest place of the earth. And some of you will go to the poorest places of the earth. And some people have already done that. And, and that's, they're, like, the poor need the gospel preached to them. But I realized suburbanites need the gospel preached to them. And Kansas City needs prayer 24-7. Our nation, it, God loves America. And our nation needs prayer. And as my ideas of what radical Christianity were began to be rearranged, I started to realize that no matter where I am in my in my external circumstance, um, I can be releasing a fragrance that is pleasing to the Lord, that moves his heart, and that changes the world wherever I am. Because otherwise, you know, what are poor people going to do? <laughs> I mean, if radical Christianity is about going to serve the poor and the destitute, what is an AIDS, you know, baby in Africa going to do? Are they going to come? Are they going to go to a poorer area? And I mean, it really like that in and of its like. There's this thing that's sweeping our culture right now, that's um, that's good a little, but it's devoid of Christ, and and it's devoid of what God truly esteems, which is faith in the in his, in the, his Son, and it's and it's rooted in in human sentiment and this idea that we can somehow. Um, change the world through our through our better humanity, and um, that is so tricky. It's so tricky. I was reading a, a thing online, and um, this person was talking, and and um, I was reading this thing about you know it was, he, he was talking about the poor and, and in Africa, and I, my heart was moving. I was going, oh, yes, yes, this is what I want to do. Like it's that thing is still in me. Like I care about you know you know orphan babies in Africa. I still do. Um, but he said something that struck me so hard, and I was like, no. I'm like, that is not the will of God. He said, God is with God is with the mother who's dying of AIDS in Africa. God is with the babies who, you know, are, are you know, born into, you know, addictions and blah, blah, blah. And God is with the dying lepers and whatever. And he said, if we're with them, then God is with us. And I read that, and I was like... No, like this thing rose up in me, and I'm like, that is not the gospel. The gospel is if we're with his son, then he's with us. And I know this might even be really be like offensive right now to some of you, but if if we go and feed the poor, says the Bible, but we don't have love, we have no reward whatsoever. I'm telling you, there are there are causes that are perishing that people are giving their lives to, and they're going to have no reward for it. Because those people might be fed, but they're still going to hell. And um, and all of our good deeds, really, in light of who he is, are the rubbish. Paul says, my own righteousness. He said, I was blameless according to the law in Philippians 4. According to the law, I was blameless. I was a Pharisee. He was like the top-notch, on-fire, zealous guy in the church of his age. And he said, all of that good stuff... Not he. I mean, he wasn't talking when he said I count it rubbish. He's not talking about oh, you know, I used to drink and you know run around with girls, and I just count that rubbish. And and that's good. Like we can totally use that context. He's saying no. I was great. I was like a stand-up guy. And he goes, all of my righteousness, it's it's garbage compared to the righteousness that I have in Christ Jesus. Um. So if I surrender all I have, if if I sell everything and give my give myself to the poor without love, it profits me nothing. And if I give my body to the flames and die a martyr's death, 
I have I have no reward. And so this is the, I mean, if you can, to me, martyrdom is the most extreme act of voluntary love I can possibly imagine. And I've, you know, I've always had this grandiose idea of, you know, living in Africa with orphans. And they come and they knock on my door and I have an orphanage or, you know, whatever. And, and they take me off and they kill me for the gospel. And I'm like, I'm like, that's like the epitome of radical Christianity for me which is radical. And there are people doing that right now, and they are totally cool. Like, they are cool with God, but that by itself is not what he's looking for. And not all of us are going to do that. So then, where does that leave the rest of us who aren't called to be fiery preachers, who aren't called to, you know, save 10 billion people through our preaching and teaching, those of us who aren't called to the office of prophet, those those of us who aren't, you know called to go to Africa and work with the poorest of poor or India or, you know, those of us who aren't aren't going to die martyrs, although many of us will. Many of us will do all those things. Um, but where does that leave those who aren't? I'm like, there has to be something else that he's looking for or else we are, there are, there are people who will be excluded from reaching their fullest potential in God and being fully pleasing to him, which is not true. There's none of us who are exempt from being fully pleasing to him. So, um, oh, I have to tell this one story. I was praying one time, this the martyrdom thing. I was praying one time a couple of years ago, and I was like, Lord, I just want to be, I want to be a martyr. You know, I heard some really good teaching, and it was like, I was all fired up, and I'm like, I'm going to, I want to die a martyr. And I said, would you grant me, would you grant me the gift and the grace of giving my life for you, in, you know, in, in the way of martyrdom? And he said, you are so excited to be a martyr, but you are not willing to live as a martyr today. Yeah. Ouch. I was like, ooh. But Lord, didn't you? I mean, I was all tender, and I'm like loving him, and I'm like, I love you so much. I want to die for you, Jesus. And he's like, die for me today. Today, die for me. Because if I live a selfish life, and if I live, you know, with with motivations and ambitions and envy and covetousness and... And I don't, and I don't wage war against sin in my heart. Maybe there will be some supernatural grace for me to die, or maybe I'll get stuck in some home church someday and shot in the head. It might not even be that hard for me to die a martyr. It might not, I might not even be that willing. But just dying, merely dying a martyr someday is not, it's not impressive. So let me tell you what, what is impressive to God. Humility. (laughs) Duh, we love that word. We love that word until it comes down to our everyday lives and we have to walk it out. And then we're like, oh, surely that's not what humility looks like. Let me just tell you something. If you're in a a situation in your life and you find yourself thinking you should do something, but it's like so hard and you just really don't want to do it, it's probably the Lord calling you to humble yourself. Probably. Not all the time. Um, And I'm giving like practical examples would look like, oh, let me, I have to, I have to think of my own self because I can't give any practical examples outside of what I've known. <laughs> um, I'm searching my mind for all the masses of opportunities for humility I've had in the past week. And some I've taken and some I haven't. <laughs> um, for example, this is a good one. I remember I was, I was standing in, this is a great one because it's so little, it's so little that I remember when I, like, when I did it, I was like, that was, that was humility. And I am so pained right now because my flesh is dying and that's why I want to cry and it wasn't even that big a deal I was talking to my roommate and um, something came up and I wanted to say something about someone (laughs) 
And the Holy Spirit just did that little <clears throat> thing, you know, that little, the nudge. That's what we call it on the night watch. We have the nudge. <clears throat> and um, he did that thing. And it was something, it wasn't even really gossipy. It was like just something about somebody that who wasn't in the room and, you know, and they probably maybe wouldn't have appreciated it if they were there. Maybe they wouldn't care. I don't know. All I know is <clears throat> happened as I was about to talk about this person and I stopped talking and I, and I realized I was at the crossroads right there. I was like, I could say it or I could not. I could say it and repent and it wouldn't be a humongous deal. But I thought to myself, I'm like, no. And the Lord had been dealing with me with my speech. And, I, and because he'd been dealing with me, I was like, this is where the yes that I had last week when he called me to clean speech plays out in my everyday life. This is where the Sermon on the Mount touches me and, and hurts me when I say yes to it. And I didn't say it. And I'm telling you, the rest of the conversation, I was like, I was like, I want to say that thing so bad. And I'm like, why do I want to say it? And the truth is, is because that was my little, that was a little old man trying to, you know, rise up and get his little two cents in, <laughs> you know. And some of us, you know, we don't recognize that because our old man is usually the one who's talking <laughs> all the time. Um, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, when you say yes to humility and to God convict me and make me holy, he really will. He really will do it. And at first, you might not recognize it as much, but he's so like he's so loving, and he who begun a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. He will give us the gift of conviction. So, what does the Lord esteem? Um, I I don't know if you guys are familiar with Isaiah 66. You may have heard, you know, the broken spirit and the contrite heart, but that's found in Isaiah 66 and a couple other chapters in the Bible. But I am in love with this passage. I want to go. I'm going to go there. If you guys want to turn with me. Where's the book of Isaiah again? <laughs> it's funny, like I know where it is when I'm alone, but when there's like 300 people in the room, I suddenly don't know where Isaiah is. Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. But where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? And just that right there, I... I mean, we read that and we're like, yeah, you know, God's looking for a resting place. But when you really think about it, this is the God that lives in heaven, that created the universe, that is totally self-sustaining and in need of nothing. That's who is talking. And he is actually pleading with humans. And he's saying, I have everything, but I have made myself this thing in my heart. And I want to live inside a human being. He's like, I could live in heaven. Are you kidding me? It's way prettier than you. I mean, he didn't say that, and he actually thinks we're more beautiful. In my brain, that's what I would say if I was God. But praise the Lord, I'm not, because we would all be burning in hell right now. (laughs) Um, We wouldn't even exist, because I don't know how to make people. Oh, my gosh. So God is looking for... (laughs) God is looking... He's looking for a resting place. He... I mean, have you guys ever read any of the verses, it's really hot in here, about the throne room? I mean, the place where he sits, his throne is is a fire, and there's wheels, and there's creatures, and there's lightnings, and there's rainbows, and there's jasper and sardius, and it's beautiful. But guess where he wants to live? Inside of you. I mean, that's like, talk about a downgrade. I mean, in my brain. I mean, it's not like that in reality. Like, we, it has not been revealed what we shall be. It has not yet been revealed. 
God is going to live inside of us, and he has picked us. Not only has he picked us, all of his energy, he's looking at us and so intensely that he literally is a flaming fire. And what's inside of him is fire, so much that his eyes are fire. Like he is so intensely wanting to be as close to us as possible that he is burning, and so much so that he actually became a man. So where's the place of my, where's the house that you will build me? I love that. Whose responsibility is it? I mean, Jesus is building the house, but we are, we're partners. When our will is yielded and submitted, we're able to be, you know, clay in the hands of the potter. And where's the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. I love when he talks. (laughs) He so wants to make himself known. But on this one will I look. So how do you get his attention? How do you get the attention of the most beautiful person from the beginning of the ages, the most, you know, attractive, desirable being? On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now, please understand that poor doesn't mean that you're broke, okay? Because there, I mean, there are a lot of poor people who are if, I mean, if they had money, they would be doing the same thing that, you know, corrupt rich people would be doing, just they don't have the, the resources to do it. I mean, you know, so being poor is not noble. Being, being without resources is not noble in and of itself at all in the sight of God. Although he cares that people have lack. He cares because he made us, and a result of the fall is why we have a lack, and he hates that. But he doesn't look at a person who has no money in their bank account and say, you're so noble before me, and I esteem you way higher than that rich guy over there. Yeah, he's got so much crap. He doesn't even, you know, he doesn't even catch my attention at all. But you, you're broke, and I see that. Because I've been broke plenty of times, and let me tell you, it was not noble. <laughs> Woo! Praise the Lord. Um, this poverty that he's talking about is, is the poverty that every human heart regardless of social status, regardless of financial stability, regardless of talents and strengths and gifts, encounters when they look at a holy God. That's what this poverty is talking about. And if you, if you, you know, if you want to do this, you can look at every, you know, epiphany that you can find in the Bible and see if that's not true of every person, every human being, every prophet, every messenger who has encountered God. What's produced when they see, I mean, you look at Isaiah 6, You have Isaiah, and he encounters God. What does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. Cursed am I. Better off dead am I. (laughs) For I'm a man of unclean lips, you know, and I come from a people of unclean lips. What did he, what was his response when he saw holiness was, I am dirty. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm dirty. I didn't even know it until I saw you. You know, I felt pretty until I saw your beauty, and now I feel ugly. You know, Jeremiah I'm but a youth. I can't do this. The Lord speaks to him. He's like, are you kidding me? He goes, I can't do this. Moses, I'm slow of speech. I can't do it. Every person, when they encounter him, is in touch with their poverty and their need and their lack of ability. And God's like, perfect. Just what I'm looking for. He goes, you know, if you would have said, gung-ho, God, let's go for it. I'm yours. You know, right off the bat, he would have been like, "Mm, that's not why he chose them. He chose them because of their, I mean, their response. Like, I mean... Yeah, he's looking for a poor spirit. You know, you have Job. I'm a worm and no man. God seriously pulled back the veil on him. Like, ah, I'm surprised he lived. But, yeah, I'm a worm and no man. (laughs) Man. On this one will I look. 
him who's poor and of a contrite spirit. And I, um, Psalm 55, verse 13, it says that burnt offering and sacrifice you do not desire. Psalm 51. Um, the, um, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. That that the Lord's idea of of beauty is humility and um, brokenness before him. And also I want to talk about brokenness because when I so many times when I heard the word brokenness, I would think of, you know, well, I'm broken because I'm jacked up. You know, God is not just looking for someone who's jacked up or relationally broken or been in 10 relationships and now I'm, my heart's broken. And because I made a lot of bad decisions and now I have a broken heart, which, I mean, God is near to the brokenhearted if they call upon him. I feel really harsh right now. I'm like convicting, I'm like offending my own self. <laughs> For real, that's good. Good. If anybody walks out here with something, it'll be me. Um, <laughs> I would be like reading my notes. Wow. Um, but yeah, brokenness, brokenness is not about being messed up. Although every human being in light of God is, it's just a matter of coming into, you know, being in touch with reality and realizing that. So brokenness, when I think of brokenness, I, it's, it's like a horse, a horse being broken and saddled. The spirit of that horse is wild, and it's, it does as it pleases, and it cannot be subdued. And when the spirit of a man is broken by the mercy and kindness, and, and I mean, the, he's terrifying as well, and the fear of the Lord, when the spirit of a man is broken and, and yielded, and you look at him and you go, really, really, not only am I sinful, but I wouldn't even be able to sin if you hadn't formed me from the dust of the earth. We realize our total depravity before him and our inability to even exist and breathe and sin against him without him. I mean, that's unbelievable. Like, he is so kind, and he's such a genius. He set it up this way so that we would end up with a fiery spirit. (laughs) And so brokenness is about repentance. Being contrite is about having a sincere heart of repentance. And I want to talk about repentance. Actually, all I wanted to do today was talk about repentance. But my, se- my, my seminar's title was not How to Repent. I wish it was. So all that, I want to talk about repentance. Um, because without repentance, we cannot have a grateful heart that overflows. Without true repentance, there is no way we can do the Sermon on the Mount. There is no way we can yield the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, the peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, um, the wisdom from above in James 3. Um, wisdom from above is peaceable, willing to yield, full of mercy. I mean, there's no way we can express that. There's no way we can forgive those who offend us. There is no way we will even have the ability to... Um, to truly not be covetous, to truly be kind to those who wrong us, to truly not gossip, to watch our mouths, to um, extend mercy um, unless we understand how much has been done for us. The Bible tells us that freely we've received and so freely give. But the only catch to that is you can't freely give unless you freely received. And that's where repentance comes in. Now, repentance is like, whenever, whenever I think of repentance, I think sad. You know, it's, it's sad. And it is sad because we've offended the one we love. And it's sad. And he hates it. He hates when we sin. But he loves to show mercy. We, and that's the part I think either we or just I, and maybe I'm just talking to myself, but I forget how much he loves mercy. So this is what that looks like when I forget about who, who, who's merciful, how merciful he is. It looks like I mess up and I 
say, oh, God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I cried. I didn't cry, why am I not crying? You know, I fast or I whatever, and I tell my five friends, and I'm like, cool, okay. And I get, cut that thing out of my life, and I try not to do it, and I remove my options, and, you know, there I am. I'm, I'm on the path to holiness again. And I mess up, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Ugh, stupid, 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 stupid. And but for real, after a while, you will be, you'll hate yourself. You will be full of self-pity. You won't be free of sin. You might cut off opportunities, but opportunities are not what makes you sinful. You're sinful because you're sinful. There's a cancer in you called an old man that's growing corrupt with his lust. That that old man is in you, <laughs> and he's being he's being killed daily as you as you submit to, to the will of God. But that old man is not going to go anywhere until the day we're perfected. So sin will always be, we will always have repentance. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of, I think, probably one of the most humble men. I mean, I don't know. I mean, he sure had the outward expression. And I'm pretty sure that his outward expression was the reality, was an internal reality. Um, one of the most humble men I can think of in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. And the Lord, give, in Second Corinthians 12 or 13, he gives him what he calls a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And the reason the Lord sent that to him was lest he become prideful because of the abundance of revelation. Now we're talking about a man who has been beaten and whipped, thrown out of cities, thrown out of cities and, and run right back into the city because he wanted to preach the gospel. Kill me, but I will preach the gospel. If you give me one more day of breath, I'm going to use it to preach the gospel to you and hope that you turn. I'm his servant. I'm his messenger. I'm his friend. You can whip me as many times as you want, but my life belongs to you receiving this man and presenting every man perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor. Uh, Colossians 1, he says that's the end that Paul was laboring to, that he would present each man perfect. He was totally not self-consumed. Yet the Lord sends him a thorn in his flesh to humble him. And Paul pleaded with the Lord three times, please let it depart from me, please. God, oh, this is painful. And God says, I know it's painful. But my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected in weakness, lest he become prideful. So Paul was prone to pride. He had an old man, just like you and me. He was a man with a nature like ours, just like Elijah was. These, these heroes of the faith, the good news is they were people just like us, with a flat, with a body of flesh, with sinful desires, with, with a war raging inside of them. And, um, that makes me feel, I mean, I don't like that. I wish that we didn't have sin, but it makes me feel better because I'm like, there is, like, it is, the, the opportunity is open for me to be fully yielded to him and fully pleasing to him. So the thing about repentance is that we can apologize and even stop doing it, but if we don't actually receive the mercy of God and encounter a merciful, loving God, if we don't encounter the man hanging on the cross, we didn't even do it. We might as well not waste our time, for real. For real. Otherwise, we're presenting God with a religious expression of what we think we should do. He tells us what we should do. He said, turn to me, to me with all your heart, for I'm merciful. Therefore, you know, the Lord is merciful, Joel 2. Merciful, gracious, abounding in loving kindness. Therefore, turn to me. He's not saying, you know... Get your act together. You just, he's like, you know, stop sinning, stop doing this. There are times in the Bible where he says that really clearly. Stop doing this, stop doing this. But we can stop doing all that. And if, if we are not going from here, this way and turning to a person, it's not, we're not turning to a, a law or a system. We're turning to a man. 
And so repentance is about, it's about relationship. It's about when I hurt my best friend and her feelings are hurt, I care because I love her. And I don't want to do what she hates. I don't want to hurt her. And so I apologize. Not so that, you know, when she gives the resume to God at the end of my life, I can have an A+. She was really cool. She was nice to me. I do it because I care about her. <laughs> I care for her heart. And I repent because I care about the Lord's heart. God is not looking for people who have their act together. He's not. In his definition of what it means to have your act together, you, we can. it's clear. Um, Psalm 51, 13 and 14. Isaiah 66. Um, and there's another verse in, in um, Psalm 34. It says, his eyes are on the righteous in verse 15. And then in 18, it says, he is near to the broken and contrite doesn't say he's near to those who have their act together. It doesn't say he's near to those who never sin. It says he's near to the broken and contrite. This is the reason that at the end of David's life, it could be said of him, this is the man after my own heart, and he has fulfilled all the will of God in his life. Well, you know he, like, saw a naked lady in a window and then went and slept with her and murdered her husband. Yeah, you know he lied a lot. Yeah, you know at the end of his, even at the end of his life on his deathbed, he, like, was like, Remember those guys that I, like, pardoned? Yeah, go kill them, <laughs> told his son. I remember reading that and going, ah, that doesn't sound like the Sermon on the Mount to me. But, I mean, he was a man who fulfilled all the will of God. Why? Because he had a broken spirit. He's the one who wrote that. He knew about it. He knew. He knew about not having his act together. But he also knew that his heart was yielded. And when he messed up, he turned to a person because he loved that person And he said, God, you can wash me. You can cleanse me. And what this does when we do this right, when we we repent and receive mercy, we come out of repentance with a heart flowing with joy, with love, and with gratitude. We don't come out depressed and pitying ourselves. We don't come out hating ourselves. We come out, we walk up to the cross and we say, I did it again. I did it again. The same thing for the 30th, 50th time. Here I am again, God. And we're waiting for the blow. Like, surely you are so fed up with me by now. I mean, ask me how I know. Like, I've done the same stupid things over and over in my life. This is not an excuse to go keep sinning. Because when you repent and you truly repent, you encounter that man who shows you mercy, you don't want to sin anymore. <laughs> you do not want to do it anymore. You want to look at him and go, you are so kind. You're not like anyone I've ever met. Everyone has given up on me. Or if they knew what happens inside here, they would have surely thought I was gross by now. Nobody would want to be my friend, <laughs> you know? They think I'm holy, God. They think I'm righteous. But you know what goes on in here. And I want to I want to do what pleases you because I love you. Because you've been kind. We love him. And our expression of love is obeying his commandments because of love, because of the overflow of our heart. And we do it because he first loved us. Now that's what he's looking for. Now I don't know about you, but I don't want to marry someone who does good things for me just because they read a booklet of what a good husband should look like. Like, I don't want to marry someone like that. I want to marry a man who's going to love me and cherish my heart and serve me because of who I am, (laughs) because he likes me, you know? I mean, if he's checking off 10 things on a list and he gets an A+, but could care less, I mean, that's not love. That's that's just a little servant. That's a robot, you know? We all, God's not after robots. But when we truly repent... We, and we come out of repentance with a flowing heart. And, and by the way, as you grow in, in, in the Lord, you are not going to repent less. As you grow in holiness, you won't repent less. You'll repent more. Really. You know why? Because you peel one, one layer of wickedness back and, whoa, there's another one. 
dang, I didn't see that one. Well, because you were, I mean, the Lord was dealing on the one layer. You peel that back and you're like, oh my gosh. You peel back, no, no, no. And so when you're 90 years old, you are a humble, broken person who is able, who is yielded to the will of God, who's in touch with their poverty before him. And guess what you're able to do? Be filled with his fullness and be a resting place for the God who dwells in heaven. You know? That's what a repentant heart is. A heart that's repentant continuously is the heart that's able to receive mercy and be purified and filled with his presence. That's why Isaiah 66 is laid out that way. Where am I going to live, says God. And he's looking around. He's like, there's some class acts in the world who really got it going on. He's like, but I'm looking for someone who knows that they're going to burn in hell without me and who is bound to me because of my mercy, who is a slave to righteousness and holiness because of the kindness that they've let me show them. But we have to let him show us kindness. We really have to get back up the next day and realize how much he loves us, or else we'll never be kind to anyone else. Because only we can only give what we've freely received. And um, the reason it's so hard for us is because it, like repentance is, is, is really humbling. We have to admit fault. We have to admit need. We have to go to a God who's beautiful and present ourselves as we are, which is so short of the mark. And it's so humbling and it's so humiliating. And I don't know about you, but when there's somebody who's wonderful, if I do something horrible to them, I would be terrified to go to them. I mean, if I if I was jacked up to somebody who's really jacked up too and I know it, I'd be like, yeah, you're jacked up. Yeah, me too. Look what I just did. And I'd feel like comforted by it. But to go to somebody beautiful and go, I'm ugly. <laughs> And, like, you know, that is, like, really scary. It's why Peter wouldn't let the Lord wash his feet. That's that thing. It seemed like humility, and it was even from his sincere heart. He's like, no, you're not going to wash me. You're Jesus. I'm gross. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve you. And and Jesus says, he's like, you don't understand. Unless I serve you and wash you, you can't be with me. And Peter's like, really? And bless his heart. He's just, I like him. He's such a, he's such a mess up. Oh, that's why I like him so much. I'm like, he just messed it up. And he ended up cool. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let us, I want to be like that. And he's like, oh, well then wash my head and my hands. And the Lord's like, no, you're still getting it kind of wrong. But God, I love your heart. <laughs> you know, but it was pride. That was purely pride that rose up in Peter. That was pride. That was self-sufficiency. That was independence. And God is saying, if you want a part of me, you have to depend. You have to be, you know, needy and totally dependent, poor, contrite, broken. And then guess what? You turn around and you look at people who are weak and they hurt you. And you can look at the person who did the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And you look at them and go, how can I hold it against you? How can I hold it against you when it's been done to me? You can't get away with holding it against people anymore. <laughs> you know, you're stuck. You're in love. You're sold out to the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a thing to, not just a thing to post on your mirror so that you read it over and over and, and you know, you learn how to do it really well. Although, do that. Learn how to do it. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read these fruits of the Spirit and try to do them as hard as you can and fall short of the mark because you will, <laughs> you know, and then cry. Cry about it and, and realize how much you need Him. And realize how much grace is available to you. And grace, by the way, is not the ability to stay stuck in your sin. And I hope Mike, Mike has probably talked about this already, but he's hitting this hard with us, with, with the staff. Grace is not um, the empowerment to keep sinning while God is sort of okay with it. Grace is the, is the power of God within you because of the resurrection to stop sinning. 
So if you are truly full of grace, if you are receiving grace, you're receiving the power to stop sinning. Yeah. And grace is a, it's about love. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, cultivating a fiery spirit. So basically the diet is repent. And in 10 years, when you're 30 or whatever, or 40 or whatever, you repent some more. Um, and when you mess up with your friends, repent. And when you mess up with God, repent. And receive mercy and see if in 20 years you are not the most joyful, grateful extender of mercy and love that anyone has ever met. <laughs> you know? So I say you know a lot, you know? So I'm going to pray for you guys before I let you go. Lord, Lord Jesus, we present our hearts to you right now. And God, we say that, that we are weak, but you are strong. God, we thank you for your salvation plan. We thank you that you have made available beauty to those who are untalented. God, that you have made humility available to those who have much. You said that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it seems impossible, but Lord, you said that with you, all things are possible. The rich can be humble. And the poor can be rich and and invigorated. The poor can be beautiful. Lord, the ugly can be beautiful. The unattractive and the sinful can be made whole and righteous. And so we come to you, God, and we ask you to teach us what it looks like to be esteemed by you. God, that we would possess these fruits, these external expressions of love. But God, we, we say we don't want them aside from the internal reality. Lord, we want to be pleasing to you when you look down from heaven. We want you to look at us and find a home, Lord, that you would not strive with man forever. I ask you for every heart in this room that as you sanctify these these beloved ones, as you grow them, as you fulfill your good pleasure within them until the day of Christ, Lord, that you would you would subdue their spirits. God, that the, every heart in here at the end of their lives would be fully yielded to you. This is the only place true happiness is found, Lord. We want to be pleasing in your sight. Lord, teach us what it looks like to be on fire with love for you. And even now, Lord, I ask you to release your fire. Release your fire all across this room to every heart as they sleep, God. I ask you to teach us your ways. Teach us the system of justice in heaven. Teach us your ways, O God, that we would be full of mercy For you desire mercy and not sacrifice. Oh God, teach us your ways. We want to be the fragrance of Christ in this earth. We want to be the fragrance of Christ in our families, with our friends. God, teach us to love. Teach us the the more excellent way that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. Better than the gifts. Better than power, Lord. We're after your heart. Better than signs and wonders, God. Better than prophetic preaching, Jesus, we want you to come live in us. We want your heart to stop striving with man and to find a resting place within us. To this end, you labor, Jesus, that you would provide a resting place for your Father on this earth in our hearts. So we ask you to give us a fiery spirit. Give us a fiery heart of love. Give us this 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 pearl, this treasure that you are seeking. We want to live before the eyes of one man. Seal our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.